Chapter Twenty Six of the Huguenot by George Payne Rainsford James. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Six, The Escape. The hope delayed, which maketh the heart sick, had its wearing effect upon the Count de Musset. His countenance showed it in every line. The florid hue of strong health was beginning to pass away and one morning in taking his usual walk up and down the court of the bastille in company with the bluff old english officer we have mentioned his companion after gazing at his face for a moment as if something therein had suddenly struck him said you look ill young gentleman what is the matter how is it possible that i can be otherwise said the count confined as i am here and lingering on from day to day without any knowledge of what is passing regarding myself or of the fate of friends that i love or of the condition of all those in whose happiness i am interested pooh you must bear things more lightly answered the old soldier why here you a youth a mere boy have plenty of time before you to spare a year or two for imprisonment Think of what a difference there is between you and me. Here am I, without a day too much to spare in life, while to you neither months nor years are anything. As to your friends without, too, trouble not your brain about them. The world would go on just as well without you and I, if we were put out of it to-morrow. Friends would find new friends, sweethearts gain new lovers, servants betake them to new masters, and the roses would grow, and the birds would sing, and love, and war, and policy, and the wind of heaven, would have their course as if nothing had happened. There might be a few drops in some eyes, which would fall like a spring shower, and be dried up again as soon. However, he said, seeing that his philosophy was not very much to the taste of the young count, you must live in the world as long as I have done, ere you can take such hard lessons home. And if it be but communication with your friends without that you want, I should think that might be obtained easily. I see not how that is to be done, replied the Count. If they had allowed me to have my valet here, there would have been no difficulty, for I do not think that even stone walls would keep in his wit. Oh, we can do without him, I dare say, replied the old man. If you write me down a note containing a few words and no treason, doubtless I can find means, perhaps this very day, of sending it forth to any one that you will. In my apartment we shall find paper, which I got not long ago. Some sort of ink we will easily manufacture for ourselves. So, come, that will revive hope a little for you, and though I cannot promise you an answer, yet perhaps one may be obtained too. There are old friends of mine that sometimes will drop in to see me, and what I propose to do is to give your note to one of the prisoners I have spoken with, who expects to be liberated to-day or to-morrow, and direct the answer to be sent by someone who is likely to come to see me. The young Count gladly availed himself of this proposal, and the means of writing having, by one prison resource or another, been obtained, he wrote a few brief words detailing the anxiety and pain he suffered, and begging some immediate information as to the probability of his obtaining his freedom, and regarding the situation of those that he loved best. He couched his meaning in language as vague as possible, and addressed the note to his valet, Jérôme Riquet, 
fearing to write to Clémence, lest he should by any means draw suspicion and consequent evil upon her. The old English officer undertook to give all the necessary directions for its delivery, and when they met again in the evening he assured him that the note was gone. At an early hour on the following morning the Englishman was called away from him to speak with someone admitted by an order from the minister, and in about ten minutes after he joined the Count and slipped a small piece of folded paper into his hand, saying in a low voice, "'Do not look at it now, or leave me immediately,' "'for there are several of these turnkeys about, "'and we must not create suspicion.' "'After a few more turns, however, the old man said, "'Now, Monsieur de Mosset,' "'and the Count, hastening to his chamber, "'opened the note which was in the handwriting of Riquet. "'I have been obliged,' it said, "'to keep out of the way and to change my shape a dozen times "'on account of the business of the exempt. "'But, from what the Count says, "'and from hearing that Monsieur de Louvois swore last night by all the gods that he worships that on account of some offence just given he will bring the count's head to the block within a week as he did that of monsieur de rohan a bold stroke will be struck to-day the count will be set at liberty about two o'clock and the moment he is at liberty he must go neither to king nor ministers nor to his own house either in paris or at versailles but to the little inn called the golden cock in the rue du faubourg saint antoine call himself monsieur du sac and ask for the horse his servant brought having got it let him ride on for poitou as fast as he can go he will meet friends by the way this was all that the note contained and what was the bold stroke that riquet alluded to the count could not divine he judged indeed that perhaps it was quite as well he should be ignorant of the facts and after having impressed all the directions contained in the note upon his mind, he destroyed the paper and was preparing to go down again into the court. It so happened, however, that he paused for a moment and took up one of the books which he was still reading, when an officer, who was called the Major of the Bastille, entered the room and summoned him to the presence of the governor. The Count immediately followed, and passing through the gate into the court of government, he found Besmo, "'waiting in the corps de garde with a blithe and smiling countenance. "'Good morning, Monsieur de Mosset,' he said. "'I have got some good news for you, which perhaps you do not expect.' "'He fixed his eyes scrutinizingly upon the Count's face, but all was calm. "'Here is an order for your liberation,' he continued, "'which, doubtless, you will be glad to hear.' "'Most glad,' exclaimed the Count, "'for, to say the truth, I am growing both sick and weary of this imprisonment.' "'especially as I know that I have done nothing to deserve it.' "'That is better than being imprisoned, "'knowing you have done something to deserve it,' said Besmaux. "'However, here is the order, "'and though it is not exactly in accurate form, "'I must obey, I suppose, and set you at liberty, "'for here is the king's handwriting in every line.' "'That you must judge of yourself, Monsieur de Besmaux,' replied the Count, "'but I hope, of course, that you will not detain me any longer than is necessary.' "'No, no,' said Besmo. "'I must obey the order, for it is in the king's hand distinctly. "'Here are all the things that were upon your person, Monsieur de Musset. "'Be so good as to break the seal yourself, examine them, and give me an acknowledgment, "'as is usual here, that they have been returned to you. "'There is the ordinary form. "'You have nothing to do but to sign it.' 
The Count did as he was required to do, and the Governor then restored to him his sword, saying, "'There is your sword, Monsieur le Comte. It is customary to give some little acknowledgment to the turnkeys, if you think fit. And now, Monsieur le Comte, you are free. Will you do me the honour of supping with me again to-night?' "'I fear not to-night, Monsieur de Besmeau. Some other time I will have that pleasure. But, of course, after this unexpected and sudden enlargement, there is much to be done.' "'Of course,' replied the Governor. "'You will have to thank the King and Monsieur de Louvois, and all that. Some other time, then, be it. It is strange they have sent no carriage or horse for you. Perhaps you would like to wait till they arrive.' "'Oh, no,' replied the Count. "'Freedom before everything, Monsieur de Besmeaux. "'By your permission, I will send for the apparel I have left in my chamber. "'But now to set my foot beyond the drawbridge is my great ambition.' "'We will conduct you so far,' replied Besmeaux, "'and led the way towards the gate. "'The drawbridge was lowered, the gates opened, "'and the Count, distributing the greater part of the money "'which had been restored to him amongst the turnkeys, "'turned and took leave of the governor, and issued forth from the Bastille. "'He remarked, however, that Besmo, with the major of the prison, "'and two or three others, remained upon the bridge, "'as if they felt some suspicion, and were watching his farther proceedings. "'He accordingly rendered his pace somewhat slow, "'and turned towards his own hotel in Paris, "'while two or three boys who hung about the gates of the Bastille "'followed, importunately, looking up in his face. He passed along two streets before he could get rid of them, and then, suddenly turning up one of the narrow lanes of the city, he made the best of his way to the little inn, or rather public house, which Jérôme Riquet had pointed out to him in his letter, where a bright golden cock, somewhat larger than life, stood out into the street from a pole thrust into the front of the house. Before he turned in, he looked down the street towards the Bastille, but saw no cause for suspicion, and entered the narrow entrance. As was not uncommon in such houses at that time, no door on either hand gave admission to the rooms of the inn, till the visitor had threaded halfway through the small ill-lighted passage. At length, however, doors appeared, and the sound of a footstep instantly called out a stout, jovial-looking personage, with a considerable nose and abundance of cheek and stomach, who, without saying anything, merely planted himself directly in the Count's way. "'Are you the landlord?' demanded the Count. "'Yes, sir,' replied the cabaretier, much more laconically than might have been expected from his appearance. "'Who are you?' "'I am Monsieur Dussac,' replied the Count. "'Oh, oh!' cried the host, laying his forefinger on the side of his face. "'If you are Monsieur Dussac, your horse will be ready in a crack. "'But you had better come into the stable. "'There are people drinking in the hall.' "'The Count followed him without saying any more, "'and found three horses standing ready saddled, "'and wanting only the girths tightened and the bridles in their mouths. "'The centre one he instantly recognised as one of his own finest horses,' famous for its great strength and courage. The other two were powerful animals, but of a different breed, and the Count was somewhat surprised when the landlord ordered a stable-boy, who was found waiting, to make haste and girth them all up. The boy began with the father horse, but the landlord then exclaimed, "'No, no, the gentleman's first. The others will do after,' and in a moment the Count's horse was ready to set out. 
"'Better go by the back gate, sir,' said the host. "'Then if you follow round by the gardens of the convent of St. Mary, "'up the little lane to the left, you will come into the road again, "'where all is clear. "'Where's the bottle, boy? I told you to have it ready. "'Monsieur Dussac will want a draught before he goes.' "'A large bottle was instantly produced from a nook in the stable, "'and a tumbler full of excellent wine poured out. "'The Count took it and drank, for excitement made him thirsty.' and he might well want that support which the juice of the grape or any other thing could afford, when he reflected that the die was now cast, that he had been liberated from prison, as he could not doubt by some counterfeit order, and that he was flying from the court of France certainly never to return, unless it were as a captive brought back probably to death. The blow being struck, however, he was not a man to feel regret or hesitation, and there was something in the sensation of being at liberty, of having cast off the dark load of imprisonment, which was in itself inspiring. He sprang upon his horse then with joyful speed, cast the landlord one of the few gold pieces that remained in his purse, and while the boy held open the back gates of the inn court, he rode out once more, free to turn his steps whithersoever he would. That part of the city was not unknown to him, and passing round the gardens and through the narrow lanes which at that time were intermingled with the Faubourg Saint-Antoine, he entered the high road again, just where the town ended, and the country began, and putting his horse into a quick pace made the best of his way onward toward Poitou. As he now went forth he looked not back, and he had gone on for five or six miles when the belief that he heard the feet of horses following fast made him pause and turn. He was not mistaken in the supposition. There were two horsemen on the road, about five or six hundred yards behind him, but they slackened their pace as soon as he paused, and remembering the words written by Jérôme Riquet that he would find friends upon the road, he thought it better not to inquire into the matter any further, but make the most of his time and go on. He thus proceeded without drawing a rein for about five and thirty miles, the men who were behind him still keeping him in sight, but never approaching nearer than a certain distance. The road which he had chosen was that of Orléans, though not the most direct, but by taking it he avoided all that part of the country through which he was most likely to be pursued, if his flight were speedily discovered. At length, in the neighbourhood of the little town of Angerville, a man appeared on horseback at the turning of one of the roads. He was evidently waiting for someone and rode up to the Count as soon as ever he appeared, saying merely, Monsieur Dussac. The same, replied the Count, and the man immediately said, This way then, sir. The Count followed without any reply, and the man rode on at a quick for the distance of fully three miles further. The horseman turned as the Count had turned, but the road had become tortuous, and they were soon lost to his sight. At length, however, the high stone walls, overtopped with trees and partly covered with ivy, which usually surrounded the park of an old French chateau, appeared, and making a circuit round three sides of this enclosure, the Count and his guide came suddenly to the large iron gates which gave admission to a paved court, leading to another set of gates, with a green esplanade and a terrace above, while the whole was crowned by a heavy mass of stonework referable to no sort of architecture but itself. Round these courts were various small buildings, scarcely fitted indeed for human habitation, 
but appropriated to gardeners and gatekeepers and other personages of the kind, and from one of these, as soon as the Count appeared, instantly rushed forth Jérôme Riquet himself, kissing his master's hand with sincere joy and affection, which was not at all decreased by a consciousness that his liberation had been effected by the skill, genius, and intrigue of the said Jérôme Riquet himself. "'Dismount, my lord, in all safety,' he said. "'We have taken measures to ensure that you should not be traced. "'Refreshments of every kind are ready for you, "'and if you so please, you can take a comfortable night's repose before you go on.' "'That was scarcely prudent, Riquet,' replied the Count. "'But I will at all events pause for a time, "'and you can tell me all that has happened. First, whose dwelling is this?' "'The house of good Monsieur Perrault,' at angeville replied the valet he has been dead for about two months and his old maitre d'hôtel being a friend of mine and still in the family gave me the keys of the chateau to be your first resting-place on entering the chateau albert of monsieur found it completely thronged with his own servants and the joyful faces that crowded round some in smiles and some in tears to see their young lord liberated was not a little sweet to his heart some balm indeed was necessary to heal old wounds before new ones were inflicted and though riquet moved through the assembled attendants with the conscious dignity of one who had conferred the benefit in which they rejoiced yet he hastened to lead his young lord on and to have the room cleared having much indeed to tell his tale was painful to the count in many respects but being given by snatches as the various questions of his master elicited one fact after another, we will attempt to put it in more continuous form, and somewhat shorter language, taking up at events which, though long past, were now first explained. From an accidental reference to the Count's journey from Mosaic to Poitiers, Riquet was led to declare the whole facts in regard to the commission which had been given by the King to Pelisson and to Saint-Élie. The insatiable spirit of curiosity by which Maître Jérôme was possessed never let him rest till he had made the unhappy curé of Guadreux declare, by a manoeuvre before related, what was in the sheepskin bag he carried, and as soon as the valet heard that it was a commission from the king, his curiosity was still more strongly excited to ascertain the precise contents. For the purpose of so doing, he attached himself firmly to the curé, during the rest of the evening, made him smoke manifold pipes, induced him to eat every promotive of drinking that he could lay his hands upon, plied him with wine, and then, when half besotted, ventured to insinuate a wish to peep into the bag. The curé, however, was firm to his trust even in the midst of drunkenness. He would peep into the bag with curious longings himself, but he would allow no one else to do so and Riquet had no resource but to finish what he had so well commenced by a bottle of heady burgundy in addition, which left the poor priest but strength enough to roll away to his chamber, and, conscious that he was burthened with matters which he was incompetent to defend, to lock the door tight behind him before he sunk insensible on his bed. He forgot, however, one thing, which it is as well for every one to remember, namely, that chambers have windows as well as doors, and Jérôme Riquet, whose genius for running along house gutters was not less than his other high qualities, found not the slightest difficulty of effecting an entrance, 
and spent three or four hours in the examination of the cheapskin bag and its contents. With as much skill as if he had been brought up in the French post office of that day, he opened the royal packet without even breaking the seals, and only inflicting a very slight and accidental tear in one part of the envelope, which the keen eyes of Pelisson had afterwards discovered. As soon as he saw the nature of the king's commission, Riquet, who was no friend to persecution of any kind, and who well knew that all his master's plans would be frustrated, and the whole province of Poitou thrown into confusion, if such a commission were opened on the first assembling of the states, determined to do away with it altogether, and substitute an old pack of cards which he happened to have in his valise, in place of that important document. He then proceeded to examine minutely and accurately the contents of the curé's trunk-mail, and more from a species of jocose malice than anything else, he tore off a piece of the king's commission, which could do no harm to anyone, and folded it round the old tobacco-box, which he had found wrapped up in a piece of paper, very similar amongst the goods and chattels of the priest. Besides this adventure, he had various others to detail to the Count, with the most important of which, namely his interview with the King and Louvois at Versailles, the reader is already acquainted. But he went on from that point to relate that, lingering about in the neighbourhood of the King's apartments, he had heard the order for his master's arrest given to Monsieur de Contal, and flew home with all speed, but on arriving at the Count's hotel found that he had already gone to the palace, and that his arrest was certain. His next question to himself was how he might best serve him under such circumstances, and habituated from the very infancy of his valethood to travesty himself in all sorts of disguises, he determined instantly on assuming the character of an exempt of one of the courts of law, as affording the greatest probability of answering his purpose. He felt a degree of enjoyment and excitement in every species of trick of the kind which carried him through, when the least timidity or hesitation would have frustrated his whole plans. The fact is, that although it may seem a contradiction in terms, yet Maitre de Jérôme was never so much in his own character as when he was personating somebody else. The result of his acting on this occasion we already know, as far as the Count was concerned, but the moment that he had seen him lodged in the Bastille, the valet, calculating that his frolic might render Versailles a dangerous neighbourhood, retired to the Count's hotel in Paris, where a part of his apparel was still to be found compounded rapidly the sympathetic ink from one of the many receipts stored up in his brain, and then flew with a handkerchief, properly prepared, to Clémence de Marly, whom he found alone with the Chevalier d'Evron. As his master had not made him acquainted with the occasional feelings of jealousy which he had experienced towards that gentleman, Jérôme believed he had fallen upon the two persons from whom, out of all the world, his master would be most delighted to hear. The whole facts of the Count's arrest then were detailed and discussed, and the words written, which, as we have seen, were received by Albert of Mosseuil in prison. Afraid to go back to Versailles, Riquet hastened away into Poitou, leaving to Clémence de Marly and the Chevalier d'Evron the task of liberating his lord, of which they seemed to entertain considerable hopes. On his return, however, he found first that all his fellow-servants having been faithful to him, the investigations regarding the appearance of the exempt had ended in nothing being discovered, 
except that somebody had profanely personated one of those awful personages, and secondly, that the Count was not only still in durance, but that little, if any, progress had been made towards effecting his liberation. The Duke de Rouvre, who seemed to be restored to the King's favour, was now a guest at the Palace of Versailles. With Clémence de Marly, the valet could not obtain an interview, though he daily saw her in company with the Chevalier d'Evron, and the report began to be revived that the King intended to bestow her hand upon that gentleman, who was now in exceedingly high favour with the monarch. The scheme now took possession of the mind of Riquet, which only suggested itself in utter despair of any other plan succeeding, and as, to use his own expression, the very attempt, if frustrated, would bring his head under the axe, he acknowledged to his lord that he has hesitated and trembled, even while he prepared everything for its execution. He went down once more into Poitou. He communicated with all the friends and most favoured vassals of his master, he obtained money and means for carrying every part of his scheme into effect, as soon as his lord should be liberated from the Bastille, and for securing his escape into Poitou, where a choice of plans remained before him, of which we shall have to speak hereafter. The great point, however, was to enable the Count to make his exit from the prison, and it was at this that the heart of Jérôme Riquet failed. His was one of those far-seeing geniuses that never forget, in any situation, to obtain from the circumstances of the present anything which may be, however remotely, advantageous in the future. Upon this principle he had acted in his conference with the king, and without any definite and immediate object but that of obtaining pardon for himself for past offences, he had induced the monarch, we must remember, to give him a document of which he now proposed to take advantage. By a chemical process very easily effected, he completely took out the ink in those parts of the document where his own name was written, and then with slow and minute labour substituted the name of his master in the place, imitating, even to the slightest stroke, the writing of the king. The date underwent the same change to suit his purpose, so that a complete pardon in what appeared the undoubted hand of of the king himself, was prepared for the Count de Merseuil. This step having been taken, the Riquet contemplated his work with pride, but fear, and the matter remained there for the whole day, but by the next morning he had become habituated to daring, and resolved to make the document complete. He spent eight hours in forging underneath an order, in due form, for the Count's liberation, and the most practised eye could have scarcely found any difference between the lines there written and those of the king himself. In all probability, if Riquet could have obtained a scrap of Louvois' writing, he would have added the countersign of the minister, but as that was not to be had, he again laid the paper by and was seized with some degree of panic at what he had done. He had brought up, however, from Poitou, his lord's intendant, and several others of his confidential servants and attendants, promising them, with the utmost conceit and self-confidence, to set the Count at liberty. They now pressed him to fulfil his design, and while he hesitated with some degree of tremor, the note which the old English officer had conveyed to him was put into his hands, and decided him at once. He entrusted the forged order to a person whom he could fully rely upon to deliver it at the gates of the Bastille, stationed his relays upon the road, 
and prepared everything for his master's escape. Such was the account which he gave to his young lord, as he sat at the chateau of Angerville, and though he did not exactly express all that he had heard in regard to Clémence de Marly and the Chevalier d'Evron, he told quite enough to renew feelings in the bosom of the Count, which he had struggled against long and eagerly. "'Who are the men?' demanded the Count. "'That followed me on horseback.' "'Both of them, sir,' replied the man, "'were persons who would have delayed any pursuit of you at the peril of their own lives. "'One of them was your own man, Martin, whom you saved from being hung for a spy, "'by the night attack you made upon the Prince of Orange's quarters. "'The other, sir, was poor Paul Verlet, who came up with the intendant of his own accord.' with his heart well-nigh broken and with all the courage of despair about him. "'Poor Paul Verlet!' exclaimed the Count. "'His heart well-nigh broken. Why, what has happened to him, Jerome? I left him in health and in happiness.' "'Aye, sir,' replied the man. "'But things have changed since then. Two hellish priests, of a great mind to become a Huguenot myself, got hold of his little girl and got her to say, or at least swore that she said, she would renounce her father's religion. He was furious, and her mother, who had been ill for some days, grew worse and took to her bed. The girl said she had never said so. The priest said she had, and brought a witness, and they seized her in her father's own house and carried her away to a convent. He was out when it happened, but when he came back he found his wife dying and his child gone. The mother died two days after, and Paul, poor fellow, whose brain was quite turned, was away for three days with his large sledge-hammer with him, which nobody but himself could wield. Everybody said that he was gone to seek after the priests, to dash their brains out with the hammer, but they heard of it and escaped out of the province, and at the end of three days he came back quite calm and cool, but everybody saw that his heart was broken. I saw him at Mosay, poor fellow, and I have seldom seen so terrible a sight. The mayor, who has turned Catholic, you know, sir, asked him if he had gone after the priest, to which he said no. But everyone thinks that he did. While Riquet was telling this tale, the Count had placed his hands before his eyes, and it was evident that he trembled violently, moved by terrible and strongly conflicting feelings, the fiery struggle of which might well have such an influence on his corporeal frame. He rose from his seat slowly, however, when the man had done, and walked up and down the room more than once, with a stern, heavy step. At length, turning to Riquet again, he demanded, "'And in what state is the province?' "'Why, almost in a state of revolt, sir,' replied Riquet. "'As far as I can hear, there are as many as a couple of thousand men in arms in different places. It is true they are doing no great things.' that the intendant of the province, sometimes with the bishop, sometimes with the Abbé Saint-Élie, marches hither and thither with a large body of troops, and puts down the revolt here, or puts down the revolt there. Till he hears that it is broken out in another place, he remains where it last happened, quartering his soldiers upon the inhabitants, and, in the order of the day, allowing them to do everything but kill. Then he drives the people by thousands at a time to the churches of our religion, makes them take the mass, and breaks a few of them on the wheel when they spit the host out of their mouths. He then writes up to the king that he has made wonderful conversions, but before his letter can well reach Paris, 
he is obliged to march to another part of the province to put down the insurrection there, and to make converts and break on the wheel as before. "'Say no more, say no more,' cried the Count. "'O oh God, wilt thou suffer this to go on?' Again he paced the room for several minutes, and then turning suddenly to Riquet, he said, "'Riquet, you have shown yourself at once devoted, courageous, and resolute in the highest degree.' "'Oh, sir,' interrupted the man, "'you mistake. "'I am the most desperate coward that ever breathed.' "'No jesting now, Riquet,' said the Count, in a sorrowful tone. "'No jesting now. "'My spirits are too much crushed, "'my heart too much torn to suffer me to hear one light word. "'After all that you have done for me, will you do one act more? "'Have you the courage to return to Paris this night "'and carry a letter for me to Mademoiselle de Marly?' and bring me back her reply well sir well said riquet rubbing his hands and then putting his forefinger under his collar and running it round his neck with a significant gesture a man can be hanged but once in his life at least as far as i know of and as caesar said a brave man is but hanged once a coward is hanged every day therefore as i see no other object that my father and mother could have in bringing me into the world but that I should be hanged in your service, I will go to Paris at the risk of accomplishing my destiny with all my heart. Hark you, Riquet, replied the Count. I will give you a means of security, if by any means you should be taken, and likely to be put to death for what you have done. Tell those who take you that, upon a distinct promise of pardon to you under the King's own hand, the Count of Mousseux will surrender himself in your place. I will give you that promise under my hand, if you like. That is not necessary, sir, replied Riquet. Everybody in all France knows that you keep your word. But pray write the letter quickly, for ride as hard as I will. I shall have scarce time to reach Paris before bedtime, and I suppose you would not have the young lady wakened. There was a degree of cold bitterness in Riquet's manner when he spoke thus of Clémence, which made the Count of Bosset feel that the man thought he was deceived. But still, after what had passed before, he found that he was bound to be more upon his guard against himself than against others, and he resolved that he would not be suspicious, that he would drive from his bosom every such feeling, that he would remember the indubitable proofs of affection that she had given him, and that he would act toward her as if her whole conduct had been under his eye, and had been such as he could most approve. The materials of writing were instantly procured, and while Riquet caused a fresh horse to be saddled and prepared for his journey, the Count sat down and wrote as follows. My beloved Clémence, thank God I am once more at liberty, but the brightness of that blessing, great as it is under any circumstances, would be nearly all tarnished and lost if I had not the hope that you would share it with me. I am now some way on the road to Poitou, where I hear that the most horrible and aggravated barbarities are daily being committed upon my fellow Protestants. My conduct there must be determined by circumstances, but I will own that my blood boils at the butchery and persecution I hear of. I remember the dear and cheering promises you have made. I remember the willingness and the joyfulness with which those promises were made, and the recollection renders it not madness renders it not selfishness to say to you, come to me, my Clémence, come to me as speedily as possible, come and decide for me, when perhaps I may not have calmness to decide for myself. 
Come and let us unite our fate for ever, and so far acquire the power of setting the will of the world at defiance. Were it possible, I would trust entirely to your love and your promises, in the hope that you would suffer the bearer of this, most faithful and devoted as he has shown himself to be, to guide you to me. But I fear that the little time he dare stay in Paris would render it impossible for you to make your escape with him. Should this, as I fear, be the case, write to me, if it be but a few lines, to tell me how I can assist or aid you in your escape, and when it can be made. Adieu. Heaven bless and guard you. Before he had concluded, Riquet had again appeared, telling him that he was ready to set out, and taking the somewhat useless precaution to seal his letter, the Count gave it into his hands and saw him depart. It was now about five o'clock in the evening, and as he knew that many a weary and expecting hour must pass before the man could return, the Count conferred with all the various attendants who had been collected at Angerville, and found that the account which Riquet had given him of the state of Poitou was confirmed in every respect. Each had some tale of horror or of cruelty. Paul Verlet, however, whom he had asked for more than once, did not appear, and it was discovered on inquiry that he had not even remained at Angerville, but with the cold and sullen sort of despair that had fallen upon him, had ridden on, now that he judged the Count was in safety. After a time the young nobleman, anxious for some repose both of mind and of body, cast himself upon a bed in the hope of obtaining sleep, but it visited not his eyelids. Dark and horrible and agitating visions peopled the hours of darkness, though slumber had no share in calling them up. At length, full two hours before he had expected that Riquet should return, the sound of a horse's feet coming at a rapid pace struck the Count's ear as he lay and listened to the howling of the November wind, and starting up he went to the window of the room and gazed out. It was a clear night, with the moon up, though there were some occasional clouds floating quickly over the sky, and he clearly saw that the horseman was Riquet and alone. Proceeding into the other room where he had left a light, he hastened down to meet him, asking whether he had obtained an answer. "'I have, sir,' replied the man, "'though I saw not the fair lady herself, yet Maria, the waiting-woman, brought it in no long time. There it is.' And drawing it from his pocket, he gave it into the Count's hand. Albert of Mosoy hastened back with the letter and tore it eagerly open. But what were the words that his eyes saw? Cruel and unkind, it began. Alas, must I not add even to the man that I love, ungenerous and ungrateful? What would I have not sacrificed, that would I have not done, rather than that this should have occurred, and that the first use you make of your liberty should be to fly to wage actual war against the crown? How shall I dare look up? I, who for weeks have been pleading that no such thought would ever enter into your noble and loyal nature. No, Albert, I cannot follow the messenger you send, or, to use the more true and straightforward word, I will not. And never by my presence with you, however much I may still love you, will I countenance the acts to which you are now hurrying. It was signed Clémence, but it fell from the Count's hand ere his eye had reached that word, and he gazed at it fixedly as it lay upon the ground for several moments, without attempting to raise it. Then, turning with a sudden start to Riquet and another servant who stood by, as if for orders, he exclaimed, To horse!
End of chapter 26.